So, chapter 37, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that as we consider the life of Joseph, a man who, despite his background, despite a bad family environment, and in many ways a corrupt upbringing, yet he was a person who loved you, who followed you, and who interpreted even those bad things as coming from you to shape and to mold him. What tremendous lessons we learn from this man. And so I pray in the next several weeks that he would become a living example to us. Those traits, that we could emulate them, that Joseph would become our example. For all of these things we know were written for our example. Lord, I pray for us as a people of God that we might be instructed in the Word to the extent that we become effective at using the Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would not be content in hearing others teach us, but then we would also teach what we have learned. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all met people who have tremendous potential. I've come in contact with people that I've met and I've just thought, you know, that person, there's a dynamic about that person's life. That person could be used mightily of God. There just seems to be that connection that that person has with God. And yet, oftentimes people will have something in their life that impedes them. And often it's an excuse, really. Uh, I find a lot of people who let the past have such a grip on them that they really never grow into becoming really effective for the Lord. They're always blaming their past. I'm this way because this is the way I was raised, or my father brought me up this way and was mean to me, or my mother used to slander me, and therefore, and though those things may be true, the past becomes a stumbling block rather than a springboard to give them impetus to serve the Lord in the future. So we read the life of Joseph... Here's a guy who clearly had a tough upbringing. Clearly had potential that was God-given and he was used by God and he never never let the past hold him up. We should uh, get the context in view here before we begin chapter 37. This is really the last section of the book of Genesis. Now let's just go back and get a brief overview so far. We've seen that we've dealt with the creation the fall, the flood, and then we began a series of studies where Genesis started talking about people rather than events. It began speaking about events. After the events were over, beginning in chapter 12, people came into focus, personalities. Personalities like Abraham, who was called from Mesopotamia and came down into the land of Canaan. And God gave him tremendous promises that the land of Israel would be his and his descendants forever. After Abraham was Isaac. After Isaac, Jacob, and now we're introduced to Joseph in chapter 37, and the focus of the rest of the book is upon this man, Joseph. More chapters are devoted to Joseph than to Abraham, even though Abraham's the father of the faith. More chapters are devoted to Joseph than to Isaac. More chapters are devoted to Joseph than to Jacob. In fact, there's more chapters devoted to Joseph that are devoted to the creation of the heavens and the earth, 
the fall of man, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and all those events put together. So God has something to say. Number one, because this man is a significant individual. He was one of 13 kids. You know, it's been said that uh, well, one person uh, commenting on this, his life and Jacob, who had the 13 kids, he said, a man with 13 kids is much more content and much happier than a man with $13 million. Because a man who has $13 million always wants another million. A man with 13 kids ready to quit. Now we already know that the life of Jacob was complex. He had four wives. He only wanted one. All he wanted was Rachel. He saw Rachel back there in Padanaram and looked at her and was love at first sight. He walked up to her and kissed her and then he began to weep and bargained with her father Laban how that he might marry her uncle Laban, how he might marry this gal. Laban pulled a little switcheroo the night before, actually the night of the wedding. He got Leah instead of Rachel. And from that point on, he had two wives, and there was an animosity and an envy going on between them. Rachel was the one who was favored, but she could bear no children. And so she came and she said to her husband, Give me children or I'll die. He said, honey, who do you think I am? Am I in the place of God that I can grant you children? It was God that's closed your womb, not me. Don't blame me. So she prayed to the Lord. She was barren. And in her barrenness, she gave her handmaid, Bilhah, to her husband. And through Bilhah had children in a surrogate kind of a method. Until later on, finally, God opened her womb, answered her prayer, and Joseph was born. Which means, God shall add. Meaning, God shall add still to me another son. And prophetically, that happened. For Benjamin came some years later after he was born. Um, the theme of Joseph's life, if you wanted to give it a theme, would be probably from rags to riches. He reaches the pinnacle of society. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. From pit to pinnacle. From rags to riches. One who is put into the pit and sold into slavery by his brothers, but God raises him up to become the prime minister of Egypt, and he becomes very key in the future of Israel as he saves the world, including the sons of Jacob, from famine. Jacob and his sons move into Goshen, province of the land of Egypt, where they stay they become slaves years later, and God takes and through Moses delivers the children of Israel into the promised land. So Joseph will play a prominent uh, role in the future and in the history of Israel. The thing to remember about Joseph is that God used tragedy to shape him, to mold him. And Joseph never got bitter at God for the tragedy, the bad things that happened. You know, how many times have you heard, thought, or said, God, why did you allow this to happen? I can't believe if you love me, why you would allow these circumstances or these people to hassle me or on and on and on. 
Joseph never got bitter. In fact, though his brothers hated him, envied him, and sold him as a slave into Egypt to the hands of the Midianites who went down to Egypt. Later on, when his brethren came before him, Joseph looked at them and he said, You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He saw the hand of God, the providence of God working in his life. How that all things work together for good to those that love God. Do you love God tonight? Then chill out, man. Relax. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Don't think God left and went on vacation, left you high and dry, and now he's concerned and interested in somebody else. He's got a plan afoot. He's working in your life. Joseph never let those tragic circumstances do anything but shape him into a man of God. It should be said that strong leaders, strong men and women of God, are not just born. They are made. God builds them. And the way God builds them is he chisels them. He takes the raw material plain as you are, simple as you are, and then he starts working on you. He takes the sandpaper out and the hammer and starts chipping away all of the junk. And he starts sanding it down and, hey, it hurts. There are times when we think, God, I thought you loved me. Joseph could have said that many times as he's sitting in a pit, as he's sitting in prison in Egypt, as he's a slave of Potiphar, one thing after another, but he saw God's hand in it. God shaped him. God molded him. You know, the trials of life will either break your back or bend your knee. They'll either make you a better person or a bitter person, and I've seen enough of the latter. I hear lots of complaints from Christians. Why does God, how could God, I can't understand why God, but how precious few are those saints who say, I don't know what's happening, but I know one thing, God still loves me. Now that's faith. It's easy to say, I believe in God when everything's going your way. When you're looking to empty cupboards or broken relationships or you're looking at tragedy in your life and you can say, God still loves me. I still trust him. I still believe in him. That's faith. Joseph was a man just like that. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. The lad was with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, they've come back into the land. As you know, Jacob wandered out of his land, out of the land of Canaan, and went to Padan Aram, to Laban. He spent 20 years there. He was fleeing from his brother who was out to kill him, his brother Esau. After 20 years, he returns to the land. He goes to Shechem. Remember what happens in Shechem? The daughter, the only daughter of Jacob, gets raped. The sons of Jacob murder the guy who did it. Uh, The family is shame-faced. God finally has to get their attention and say, get out of this place and get back to Bethel, the place where I delivered you on your way out and come back to me. And there was a repentance and a revival that occurred in their lives. They left Shechem, went to Bethel, and then between Bethel and Hebron, down in the south where Abraham first started, is where they spent now most of their time when God 
uh, gets a hold of Joseph. And uh, Joseph and his brothers are tending their father's sheep. It says that Joseph was 17 years old, and it was at this time that God will speak to Joseph through a dream. You know, a lot of times we read the Bible and we get this crazy picture of the patriarchs as all of them being really old with gray beards and bent over and, you know, streaks of gray in their hair to give them that look of wisdom like Cecil B. DeMille gave uh, to Moses in the Ten Commandments. We think of all of these ancient, old, rugged guys. Joseph was, he was a teenager. And God will often, in fact, more often than not, call the heart of a young person. Because when a person is young in age, they are more vulnerable, more susceptible. They haven't been set in their ways. They haven't become so hardened in their thinking. They're just a lot easier to get a hold of. Jeremiah was young when God called him. He wasn't an old, gray-headed guy. And I'm not saying that God doesn't speak or use those kinds of people. Certainly he does. Caleb was 85 when things just began in his life. Fully alive at 85. At other times, God called teenagers. Jeremiah was one of them. In fact, Jeremiah said, I'm just a kid. I can't speak to the nation of Israel. God said, would you quit using that as an excuse? I've called you as a prophet to the nations. Timothy was young. Paul said, don't let anybody despise your youth. Go for it. Daniel was in his teens when God graciously used him in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And also Joseph, 17 years of age. The Billy Graham Association a few years ago released some statistics that somebody else gave to them of the odds of a person coming to know Christ at different ages in their life. And simply studying the conversions of people that came to the Billy Graham Crusades and the way evangelism was conducted worldwide by many organizations, the conclusions were these, that the chances of accepting Christ for a person who's 25 years old is 1 in 5,000. Again, these are just uh, odds that are given by observation. 1 in 5,000. If you're 35 years of age, the odds are 1 in 25,000. If you're 45 years of age, it's 1 in 60,000. The odds are 1 in 60,000 that that person will come to know Christ. If you're 55 years of age, the odds are 1 in 125,000. The odds decrease exponentially the older you get. Of course, if you're 65, 75, it is just miraculous. Of course, it's miraculous any time the new birth is. But most people make commitments to Christ at a young age. How many of you tonight, for a show of hands, made a commitment to Jesus Christ after after the age of 25, raise your hand. After you were 25. Okay. Now put your hands down. How many of you made a commitment to Christ before the age of 25? Raise your hand. Remember the prophet Samuel was just a little kid in the house of Eli. And God spoke one night and he said, Samuel, Samuel. He woke up and he thought Eli called him. And you remember the story. I've recalled it several times. It's one of my favorite because... God calls people often when they're very young because they're open. They're looking around. They're wondering, what's the meaning? What's the purpose of life? 
And it's at that time often the seed is sown in the heart. That's why new innovative ways to reach the young people should be capitalized on. The church should maximize her efforts in reaching out toward the young because that's the future man. I'm not just saying to the exclusion of everyone else the gospel is universal but let's, let's hit the kids hard while they're young. He was 17 years of age. He was impressionable. God got a hold of him. But he was so good. I mean not a bad thing is said about this kid which is good and bad if you're a bad kid and his brothers were bad kids. And you know what it's like when you're bad and somebody else is good? You don't like that good person. Because they show you up. Men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. Every time Joseph was around, he was a reminder of just how wicked they were. They didn't like this kid. And he was so honest that he went back home and told his dad the evil report. Told of the bad things, the wickedness that his brothers were getting involved in. That didn't go over too well with them. Now, just to add to it, verse 3, Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his children. Because he was the son of his old age, also he made him a tunic of many colors. Favoritism in a family is picked up on by kids. I was the youngest of four brothers. Now, I have often had people say, oh man, you must have been really spoiled. You must have been the favorite. No, in my case, it was just the opposite. Uh, I grew up being, com- you know, being compared to my brothers. Hey, you know, if only you were as smart as Jim. If only you could play football like Rick. Those kinds of messages came and they can tend to make a person feel insecure. I was picked on by my older brothers. I didn't have a position of favoritism. Joseph was this cherished son even though he was young, not because he was the youngest or one of the younger, but simply because Jacob, his dad, loved Rachel. Rachel died. He's the only one left. He lavished all of his love upon the son of his loved wife, Rachel. And that favoritism showed. Now, in my family now, there's not a problem. I have one and one alone, one son. There's no competition. He feels very secure in his dad and mom's love. He's not worried about comparison. Now, uh, God willing, if we have more kids, he's in for a rude awakening as all of a sudden the devotion isn't completely upon him. But there's another significant other in the house. Then it's going to be really, really interesting. (laughs) Jacob, I'm disappointed in him. I can understand why he would love this son so much, but of all people, he should have known better. He was the product of that kind of a home. He remembered how his own dad, Isaac, loved his brother Esau more, and how his mother, Rebekah, loved him more, and there was that family animosity and tension between them. He grew up with it. He should have known better. He should have been keen to that. But, oh, he was blinded by his love for his wife, and... He just loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made for him a tunic of many colors. The best translation of that, the actual literal translation in the Hebrew text, is that he made him a tunic that had long sleeves. No doubt it was multicolored. It was bright, and so it just like 
you know, 500 watt piece of clothing. But the idea is that there were sleeves attached to it. Now, the working person in those days, the farmer, the blue collared worker, never was able to wear sleeves, couldn't afford it. The uh, common thing that he would wear is one long piece of cloth about 10 feet long with a hole cut in the middle that you put over your head. And you wrap the thing around you, and your arms are free so that you can work, and you can tuck the bottom portion of that. You can gird up your loins. You can take that cloth and tuck it up into the rope or the belt, and you're free to work. Only favored rulers wore multicolored tunics with long sleeves attached to them. This was an overt gesture of favoritism and rulership. He was exalting his son, probably saying, All of you kids are rotten. I want Joseph to assume all of the rights of the firstborn. Which, again, they didn't hit it off very well with these brothers. The tunic of many colors. I think that uh, if we were to counsel Jacob, if I were to counsel Jacob, he would walk into my office, I'd say, Jake, sit down, buddy. Now, I'm not an expert. I don't have the amount of children you have, but I've been around long enough to know that you are setting your son Joseph up for some hard roads ahead. You've showed favoritism to him. You're setting him up to be the recipient of jealousy and hatred and envy by his brothers. People around him are going to make fun of him because you've just spoiled this kid rotten. His brothers already know that you love him more and then you've given him this uh, coat of rulership, of leadership. You better watch out, pal. But again, it seemed that this guy was just blinded by his love. And... Joseph did experience many hardships. Can you think back to maybe high school or college when there was that one kid in your class who was just spoiled? I remember this girl that lived down the street. She was the object of envy. When she was 15 years old, her dad, who was a wealthy attorney in our town in California, went out and bought her before she could drive a brand new red Porsche. Couldn't even drive the thing. She was just getting her learner's permit. Now, she was elated. She thought, oh, Dad, you're such a great paw. <laughs> How do you think the other kids in the neighborhood felt toward this young 15-year-old who had this brand-new red Porsche? She didn't hit it off very well. It set her up for some taunting and some misery in school. Now, Joseph dreamed a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. If you wonder why, let's figure out what the dream is. He said to them, Please, hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) If I were Joseph, and I would have dreamed that dream, I wouldn't have told it to them. Those are the kinds of things you keep secret. And just see, is this from God? Well, I'll just wait and see if the uh, circumstances bear out and God bears witness uh, through the events of my life. But I'm not going to get these guys. All I I can conclude is that this guy was very naive. Remember Beaver and Leave it to Beaver? (laughs) I kind of picture in my mind Joseph being that way. Well, gee, Wally, and just... You know, this, this naive sort of a kid who was just learning the ropes of life. He didn't realize how uh, wicked and, and bad the world really was until he got some hard knocks with uh, Eddie Haskell and Lumpy and the rest of the gang. 
But you can picture the scene. This kid comes out there telling the dream of how all of them bow down to him and he, he's wearing his robe to boot. <laughs> Gullible. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Anger is a seed that if you allow it to grow, will turn into bitterness. And if you allow the bitterness in your heart, you will not be satisfied until you see revenge. It'll eat you alive. There's one character in the New Testament, and Paul said, I perceive that you were in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. It had eaten that person up. They were in bondage to it. His brothers saw him and hated him. They were so angry every time they saw him, there was that ongoing animosity. They will harbor that bitterness until finally Joseph releases them from their sin and forgives them later on. Forgiveness is the way to end bitterness. Even if you are the person who's wronged, to take the initiative. You know, I know a lot of people say, hey, that person really fried me over, man. He really, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just, I'm out of here. Until that person comes and apologizes. Hey, Joseph saw his brothers and took the initiative and said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. There was a reconciliation that took place. Sometimes we think we're justified to hold a grudge. I've told you the story before of two well-known people in British history who hated and held grudges, who were angry with each other. One was the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, who hated this antagonistic woman who always showed up wherever he went named Lady Astor. Wherever he would uh, go, she would be there and she would speak out publicly against him, which just fueled his anger and words that would flow back and forth. And on one occasion... Uh, when Winston Churchill was coming out, I don't know, Parliament or something, she was there and, and uh, they had words with each other and she said, Sir, if you were my husband, I would put arsenic in your tea. Which embarrassed him. And he retorted back, Madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> well, the British press got wind of it and, you know, uh, they became these national rivals. Again, on another occasion... When Winston Churchill had too much to drink and they were at a public gathering and she shouted out, Sir, you're drunk. And he turned and said, Madam, you're ugly. And in the morning I will be sober. <laughs> Fighting words. And it never ended. They went to their graves hating one another. You can see as the verses go on, that the anger is only fueled by every new blessing that Joseph receives, either from the hand of his father or from the hand of God. They hated him more and more. The seed was growing. And uh, you should know what Jesus had to say about anger, by the way, so that you just don't excuse it. He called it sin. He said, You have heard that it has been said by those of ancient times that you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. Of course, when people heard that message that day, I'm sure they all nodded their heads and said, Amen! Try it. Preach it. <laughs> Until he said his second point. He said, But I say unto you, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you shall be in danger of the judgment. 
people were strangely silent when Jesus, it shocked them because he equated hatred with murder because indeed murder begins in the heart. You see a person, you think, I'm going to kill him. Murder is only the acting out of the sin that's already in your heart. Many people restrain themselves before they let it get it out, get that far because they know of the consequences. And as our courts are going, there won't be many consequences soon. And so you'll see more and more people out killing uh, one another, inventing what's been in their hearts all along. So Jesus said, if you go to the temple and you bring your gift to God, and while you're offering you gift, you remember that your brother has something against you, stop right there. Put your gift down, leave it. Go be reconciled with your brother first. Then come and offer your gift to God. Sometimes the closest route to God is not straight, but it's through your brother, who you have offended or who has offended you. Reconcile, which is a word that means to exchange. Exchange bitterness for forgiveness. Hatred and animosity for love. It's going to ruin, really, not Joseph, but his brothers in the end. Verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Oh, come on, Joe. Wake up, man. And said, look, I have dreamed another dream. This time, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Here's this wide-eyed little leave-it-to-beaver kind of a character. Who do you think of that? Kind of neat. Now, his brothers hated him. He's got the robe on. The first time they said, Who are you? You're going to reign over us? And he went away, got another dream, came back again and said, Hey, this time, Mom and Dad and all of you bowed down to me. How do I know it's Mom and Dad and all of them? Because his dad, Jacob, picks up on it. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brother envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, I just want to pause and show you how the New Testament and the Old Testament, especially the book of Revelation, are interlocked. A lot of times we read the book of Revelation and we feel like we have the poetic license to give it any fanciful interpretation we desire. All millennialists are perfectionists at this. They allegorize everything. Well, I don't think it really means that. I think it means... And you just come up with any fanciful interpretation for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, in all of the idioms that are used in it, has its interpretation in the history of Israel. In the Old Testament, because the book of Revelation, principally the seven years of tribulation, which are part of the 70th week of Daniel. If this is over your head, wait, we'll get to it at another time. But a lot of you are keyed into this. Which deals with the nation of Israel, principally. And all of the interpretive idioms from the book of Revelation aren't these weird symbols that you just have to say, hmm, let me just guess what this is. You can find the answers to it by unlocking their original meaning in the text of Scripture. For instance, right here. The only other time that this symbolism is used is Revelation chapter 12, where John says, And behold, I saw a sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon was under her feet, and the twelve stars were upon her head. People have thought, hmm, what could this be? Well, let me interpret this correctly. Oh, 
this is probably the church. Now, people who teach the church is going through the book of uh, going. The church is going through the tribulation period. Often say that the woman in the book of Revelation is the church going through tribulation. If the woman in Revelation 12 is the church, the church is in big trouble because she ends up pregnant in that chapter. She has a child. She's ready to give birth. The scripture says that the church is the virgin bride of Christ. doesn't fit. But it does fit that the woman in Revelation 12 is the nation of Israel as interpreted here. The 12 stars being the 12 sons of Jacob. The sun being Jacob. The moon being the wife, Rachel. The sun, the moon, and the 12 stars were interpreted by Jacob as being Israel, principally the brothers, the mom, and the dad. The woman in Revelation 12 is about ready to give birth to a child, a male child who will rule all of the nations. Obviously, Jesus Christ. Again, the idiom is also found in other parts of Scripture. Jesus was bo- came through the nation of Israel, through the tribe of Judah, and we explored that when we were in Revelation, but... Uh, the interpretation comes out of the Old Testament. Here's my point. If you're familiar with the Bible, the rest of the Bible, the last book of the Bible won't be really tough. You will already know the interpretive idioms from the Old and the New Testament. You get to the book of Revelation. Oh, I remember where that was mentioned. And this is what it meant. And you can apply the interpretation a lot more easily. Well, Dad gets upset. Verse 11, his brothers envied him. Now let me explain to you what that word means. If you look up envy, the dictionary, the meaning of envy is a feeling of displeasure when you find out the advantage or the prosperity of another person. Somebody gets something, somebody's blessed, and you're mad. You're mad that God has blessed that person And God hasn't blessed you. That's envy, man. The Bible says we should rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. I find that Christians can weep with those that weep a lot easier than they rejoice with those that rejoice. Some bad thing happens to a person. Oh, brother, I'm so sorry. Arms around him. But hey, God gave me a new job, a new car, and I won a million dollars. Really? Praise God. That's so wonderful. Then that person will become the subject of that other person's gossip. Mark my word. They, brothers envied Joseph because he was being pushed up. And bitterness began because they were hurt. They felt envious. By the way, let's face it. All of us have been hurt. You can look to your past and probably remember somebody who's hurt you. Your mom, your dad, a girlfriend, your wife. But don't hold on to that. Don't hold on to the past and just say, well, you know, I'm kind of emotionally impotent because this one event happened and just ruined my whole life. Hey, maybe you are the product of your environment. I could tell you story after story of how I felt depleted after my dad did this or my brothers. But hey, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Does that mean all of a sudden I don't let, I don't, uh, uh, I'm not in touch with the past? No, that's not true. But I don't let the past govern my future. Forgetting those things which are behind. Reaching forth to those things which are before. Okay, God bless Joseph. Dad loves Joseph. Let's just go on, man. So what? 
Let's not let this thing with Joseph hurt us. But it didn't work. And as a result, they became bitter. And you can follow it. Look at verse 4. Let's look at a few verses right after each other. Verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers. They hated him. They couldn't even speak peaceably to him. He came around and all they could think of is bad things to say. They couldn't even say, hey, Joe, good morning. They hated him. Got tongue twisted. Look at verse 8. His brother said, so you indeed reign over us? Shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And then verse 11, his brothers, his brothers envied him. If you look ahead to verse 27, they said, come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened to him. They allowed the anger to grow into bitterness. They were not satisfied until they meted out their revenge upon him. Then his brothers went to feed their flocks in Shechem. (laughs) Now come on. Remember what happened in Shechem? (laughs) The brothers murdered the fellow who raped their sister. Shechem is about 60 miles north of Hebron. Jacob must have left a lot of flocks up there, and they assumed the responsibility to go up and take care of them. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flocks in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And so he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers. And well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. I have to remark about Jacob for just a moment, because I think Jacob made a mistake that many dads make today. You see, I'm of the opinion that Jacob was a very busy, and therefore a very passive father in terms of involvement with his children. Remember at Shechem, after they left Padanaram and came to Shechem, when Dinah was raped and when his sons killed Shechem, who raped Dinah, all that Jacob could think about was himself. He said, man, you kids have given me a bad reputation, a bad rap with the inhabitants of the land. I can't believe you've made me stink in their nostrils. He said, Dad... That guy raped our sister, your daughter. But all he could think about was himself. He was so wrapped up in his own life. He'd spent 20 years thinking about himself, his prosperity while he was with Laban. He was used to that. Now he sends Joseph off to his brothers. Now his brothers hate him. Hey, put on your royal coat. Go visit your brothers and see if they're behaving. He must have been totally oblivious to the fact that his brothers hated him. If he wasn't oblivious to it, he wouldn't have sent them under those conditions. All I can conclude is that dad was just so busy that he was very passive in the involvement of his children. And he let his, uh, he didn't know that inside their hearts, the hearts of Joseph's brothers, there was envy and strife that was going on, and so he sends them their way. I find today the tendency among Christian dads to become very passive with their children. Buy him a cassette. Send them to Sunday school. Let the Sunday school, let the Christian school teach my kids values and morals and how to behave. It's their job. It's the church's job. 
It's your job, Dad. The Sunday school department will have your child for 52 hours a year. That's if you attend church every single Sunday. And I doubt that most of you have that kind of a record. 52 hours a year. Can you instill enough Christian values in a child when they're getting fed all of the other garbage all the way around the clock at their school and their peers and the media? No. It takes the involvement of dad to sit their kid down, to spend time with them, to fight passivity, to get involved in their world and study their children. Find out what makes them tick. Find out about their world. might surprise you what they already know, what they already can pick up on. Now, Joseph is out there looking for his kids. He just hears this kid not knowing where to go. He's just in this bright-colored outfit with sleeves looking around, you know. Where's Wally? <laughs> now, a certain man found him, verse 15, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man said, what are you seeking? He probably saw Joseph, you know, kind of pass his tent several times. And the guy figured, this kid's lost. So he said, what are you doing? What are you looking for? He said, I am seeking my brothers, please. Tell me where they're feeding their flocks. And the man said, they've departed from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Dothan is north, up in the valley of Ezralon. If you've been to Israel, you have a frame of reference. As you go north of Samaria, I'll put it this way. Remember the day when we left Haifa, and we went toward Nazareth, and we went down into the valley, it was a beautiful lush valley, and on one side was uh, uh, the mount where Elijah slew the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and then over here was Mount Megiddo, that big lush valley where the bananas and the oranges are growing. That's Dothan, the valley of Ezralon, right up at the crossroads there. That's where he took the sheep. He said, that's not fair. I haven't been. Well, we have a tour coming up in uh, May. Uh, we'll show you this place. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. You know, they could see this kid in his coat coming a mile away. It's like wearing a red flag in front of a bull. He's looking for his brother. Oh, there's that dreamer, they said. Look, this dreamer is coming, verse 19. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some wild beast has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard about it. And he delivered him out of their hands, and he said, Hey, let's not kill him. Reuben said, Shed no blood. Now it sounds like, Hi, Reuben, man, what a great guy, saving his life. He says, Don't kill the kid. Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit. We don't want to kill him. He's worth some money, man. Which is in the wilderness, do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. And it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. What's it referring to? I believe it's referring to a cistern. Let me give you a little background of Israel. In ancient times, of course, they had no plumbing. You couldn't walk up into your house and just... Turn on the faucet. And so they had wells and they had cisterns. Cisterns were uh, pits that were dug out of solid rock. And they would dig these huge caverns and they would channel the water from the rain that would fall and it would run down 
the tunnel and into the cistern. And the rainwater would be collected. It would be then filtered, and they would use that throughout the uh, times of the year when it didn't rain for their water, for their bathing, and for their ritualistic cleansing to fill their mikvaot, which were the baths that the Jews walked in and cleansed themselves before they went to worship. So they collected them in cisterns. Sometimes the cisterns were dry, either because they had a bad year of rain or because there was a flaw in the cistern. You know, there'd be a guy out there and he'd work for months and work for months and work for months and he'd dig that cistern out and it'd look great. And then it would rain. The rains would come and it'd rain for four, five, six nights and after the rain stopped, he thought, Honey, tomorrow we can go out to the cistern and we'll have water. But he walked out there the next day and sometimes he'd walk out and it'd be dry. And as he would examine closely, he would see that he dug his cistern into a rock that had a hairline fracture that he didn't know about. And so they'd have to patch it with mortar and seal it after they were done digging it. That's the imagery behind the scripture when God says, My people Israel have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See the imagery? They've left an artesian well for a dried out cistern that has a crack in it. They've left me. I wanted to refresh their lives. Anyway. They found a cistern. There was no water in it. They threw Joseph in it. And they waited. They sat down to eat a meal. They're hungry, you know, throwing their brother in the pit. That takes some energy. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They sat down, had a meal, lifted up their eyes, and looked. There was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. And so Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. So noble, these characters. And his brothers listened. The Midianite traders passed by, and so the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, if you are an astute student of this chapter, if you've read it in advance, you probably picked up on something. It said that the Ishmaelites were coming. He identifies the group as then Midianites, And then again as Ishmaelites. You think, Moses, who wrote this, can't you make up your mind? Who is it? Midianites or Ishmaelites? These are two different groups of people. Ishmael was the son of who? Ishmael. Abraham by his wife. Actually, Hagar. Yeah, it wasn't his wife, but handmade Hagar. Midian was the son of Abraham as well through Keturah. They developed two distinct groups of nomadic tribal peoples. You say, now, which is it, Midianites or Ishmaelites? The answer, both. There was such a small group of them at that time, they haven't had enough time to repopulate or to populate the earth and become a real nation at this point. And when people would travel, they would often seek other allies to band together with to travel across the desert in a caravan. It was safer that way. You're not going to get jumped. It'll be a lot harder. You can defend any attacker. So there was a group of Ishmaelites and Midianites together who had banded together to trade and to engage in commerce down in Egypt. Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more. Where shall I go? 
And so they took Joseph's tunic. Now, watch carefully. Killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in blood, and sent the tunic of many colors. And they brought it to their father and said, We have found this, liars. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it. And he said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. How did they deceive their father? By using a goat. How did Jacob, who is being deceived, deceive his father? By killing a goat. Remember when his mother Rebecca said, Honey, son, listen, your dad's old. And he wants to give out the blessing. Go and put these goat skins around you. I'll make this great stew that your dad loves, that green chili bean soup. He loves it. I'll give it to him, and you get on these smelly goat skins so that when you appear before him, since he can't see, he's going to feel you and smell you, and you're going to smell horrible, and he's going to think that it's your brother, and uh, we'll get the blessing. Jacob deceived and now is being deceived in the very same manner. There's a scriptural principle here. Be not deceived, Paul wrote to the Galatians. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He'll get back exactly what he sowed. Even as he deceived his father, he is being deceived in the very same manner, by killing a goat. And all of his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, for he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. I wanted to go through 38 tonight. Uh, We don't have enough time. And as we switch to an earlier time, we'll be able to go through it. But uh, in closing, we should just consider the lesson of Joseph. Now we've considered some of the other characters. Let's just look at Joseph. The lesson that you and I should learn about this character is that you and I can do what is right and live a righteous life before God regardless of how you were raised. Regardless of your environment and your heredity, you can't use those things as a cop-out. A lot of people do. I am the way I am because my father da-da-da, my mother da-da-da-da. There's always an excuse. Hey, that might be something that shaped the way you are now, but cannot be an excuse now. Think of Joseph's family upbringing. Four women. Four moms. There was rape. There was incest. There was murder in his family. There was deceit. He had a lot of things going against him. And yet he himself decided to obey God and not let that stuff affect him. He didn't blame his past or didn't hold to it. We're going to see as we go on in these chapters also that Joseph becomes a type of Jesus Christ in very many ways. In fact, Arthur W. Pink in his commentary lists 101 ways that Joseph is a type of Christ. I'm not going to read them all to you or recount them all to you, but there's a few ways so far that Joseph is a type of Christ. Number one, his birth. His birth was rather 
miraculous in the sense that his mother was unable to conceive, but it wasn't until God's intervention into her life, God answered her prayer, opened up her womb, and she was able to have Joseph. So that's uh, uh, one way that uh, he's a type of Christ. Number two, he was loved by his father. He was the object of special affection, even as Jesus Christ is called the only begotten son, my beloved son, and several, several titles like that. Uh, another way he was a type of Christ is that he was to rule over his brothers. He'll go down to Egypt and he'll rule actually over the whole world with Pharaoh, including his old brothers. And his brothers said, are you going to reign over us? The answer is, yes, I am. Jesus Christ was not received by the Jewish nation, but is the Messiah and will one day rule over the Jewish nation and the whole world. In fact, a Stephen belabors that point as he recounts the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 6. He said, it wasn't until Joseph was revealed to his brothers the second time that they received him. And it won't be until Jesus comes back the second time that uh, he will rule and reign with the rod of iron and rule, we will rule and reign with him. And finally, Joseph was hated by his brothers without a cause. That is, there was nothing that Joseph did that was wrong that caused them to be angry. It was the father's affection and it was that the fact that he was the object of special attention, but he was hated without a cause. Jesus Christ was hated without a cause. And I've got to say something else. Jesus is still hated without a cause. It is absolutely amazing to me how the name of Jesus Christ can evoke such hostility among men and women today. You can talk about politics, you can talk about Democrats, Republicans, Ross Perot, the economy, environment. And you get people talking. Talk about, not religion, but Jesus Christ. You'll get people rattled. There will be people who will just become so unglued and become so irate and just change. My question to them is, do you know Jesus personally? Well, no. Well, why do you hate him so much? Well, I've got nothing against him, but well, you're so angry and hostile every time I mention his name. In fact, I hear you mention his name in the wrong manner a lot. You have something against him? Well, no, I don't. Well, have you ever met him? Well, no. Well, why don't you try? What do you mean? Uh, it's amazing. They're hostile. Maybe it's the claims of Jesus Christ. You see, he said, you're either for me or against me. You either help me gather or you scatter. By using Jesus' own words, if you tonight are not for him, if you're not in his team, according to him, you are against him. Are you a Christian tonight? Have you fallen in love with Jesus? Have you made him your Lord, your Savior, your King? You might say, well, i got nothing against the guy. He's a good man. It's kind of fun to come to church and listen to you guys talk about him. It's really great. I've got nothing against him. If you're into him, really, that's really neat. But I'm really not against him. I'm just not into him, you see. I've got more pressing matters. Really? Well, you're against him. You're against him if you're not for him. Joseph was a man who was called by God and used by God. I believe that God 
has a plan for each individual who's sitting here at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque this very night. God has a plan for your life. God wants to take and make your life be really awesome and really count. He doesn't want your life to just be ho-hum and sorta and kinda, but really full-on, sold out for him, governed by him, used by him. Hey, the most exciting kind of a life you can experience is when God uses you. It's awesome. God wants to use you. God has a place and a plan for you. You say, I don't got time for him. He had time to die on the cross for you. He has time to take your life, to work in your life, forgive your sins and use you. You don't got time for the one who created you. Let's pray. Father, tonight I thank you for this little glimpse of the life of Joseph, young and yet called by you. I thank you for this many people that have made commitments to Jesus Christ at a young age and at any age. Father, I pray specifically for the young people of this church. You raise them up, Father, to become the next pastors and evangelists and leaders of this Christian, of this nation and of the church. Lord, I pray that they would be a bright and shining light. Father, I pray for those who have up to this point said, I have nothing against Jesus, but you said that they're against you because they've not surrendered. Lord, I pray that they would come into the kingdom tonight. They would come under the grip of your authority, your sovereignty. They would relinquish the rights that they have of ruling their own lives and give that over to you. As your heads are bowed and you're just thinking about some of the things we said tonight, I'd just like to give you an opportunity. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? If not, I'd like you to have that opportunity. 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 You to have